Today, we are going to look at a story that helps us understand the nation that we live in, the nations around us, and it helps us understand ourselves as well. Uh, The reason it does that is that the very first people who ever read this story, uh, it was the people of Israel, God's people, uh, it was useful to them to help them understand the nations around them. It's the origin story of the nations around them. So they could see in the behavior of some of these people why the nations around them behave a certain way. Uh, It is dense in content. The particular story we're going to read is only nine verses, but we're going to read the chapter before that to put it into context as well. Uh, It is so dense and we have so much to cover that I'm not going to give you much by way of introduction today. We're just going to open to Genesis 10 and start reading. So open with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 10. Uh, And while you're flipping there, I'll give you the backstory. Um, We are in the book of Genesis, which is the story of the origins of mankind and of God's people. And where we left off, there was just a catastrophic flood and only eight people were left on the earth after that flood. From those eight people, which was all one family, from them came all the nations of the world. And what we're going to read in chapter 10 is the list of all of those nations that came from those eight people. And then in chapter 11, we'll read a story that takes place early in that time in chapter 10 when all of mankind lived together. Let's read chapter 10. It says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah and the sons who were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Mesech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Riptha, and Togamara. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodanim. And from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his heritage, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Miseriam, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havila, Sabath, Rayama, Sabteca, and the sons of Rayama were Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Cush were, uh, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erek, and Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, and Rehoboth-ir, and Kelah. And Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Miseriam became the father of Ludim and Adamim and Lebahim and Naphtuhim. And Patrushim and Kalhuhim, from whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtorim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite and the Arvidite and the Zimite and the Hamathite. And afterwards, the families of Canaan were spread abroad. The territory of Canaan extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, uh, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages by their lands and their nations. Also Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Ashur and Arpashad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. Arpashad became the father of Shelah and Shelah became the father of Eber. 
Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days on the earth, the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Sheleph and Hamazareth and Jerah. And Hadaram and Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abumael and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab and all these were sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go toward Safar in the hill country to the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city whose tower top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. So this small section of Genesis then tells the story of the origin of the world's nations. Genesis is divided into 11 sections that have clear markers. It's 50 chapters, so you'd think the average would be about five chapters. Some sections are very long. This one is little more than a chapter. And from it, Israel learns about the people who are around them and where they came from. You know, in the beginning of this story, Canaan is a person. Uh, By the end of this story, Canaan is a whole region and Canaan's sons have all become nations in the land of Canaan. Early in the story, you have Eber. Uh, By the end of it, you have several descendants, all of which speak a same language called Hebrew. Uh, Several things like that, you can find their origins in here. You can trace it just like a family tree. Uh, Then we have a story that takes place early in this time period when all of mankind journeyed to what we today call Mesopotamia or you may have read about in your school textbooks is the cradle of civilization or the fertile crescent. It's called Babylon later often in the Bible. It's where civilization began and this helps Israel to understand those people around them. So the meaning then of chapter 10 is twofold. On one hand, many promises were made to Noah that he would multiply, his descendants would cover the earth. Uh, You see particular promises there about Ham and Canaan and people like that. All of those begin to come true true in chapter 10, so you see the promises being kept. But we're going to focus on the other side today. The other thing it does is it tells us where all these nations come from, and it puts this story of Babel in context. We can see from that genealogy that all of our ancestors were there in those days at Babel and took place in the building of this tower. So in their behavior, we can see certain qualities that are at the core of every person's heart, and particularly for this story, the core 
or of every nation's heart. So that helps you understand then the world around you and yourself. It helps you understand your neighbor who moved here from France. It helps you understand your feminist coworker. It helps you understand the identity politics that are so common to our age and amazing things like space exploration and why people bothered to camp out to get the latest iPhone back when that was going on. Like, why did people do that? You can see the beginnings of all of that and the behavior of these people, our ancestors. Now, that's important because on the flip side, in the next chapter, from one of those nations, the Lord is going to begin to call his people. He's going to call Abraham out of one of these nations that was even listed here. And so for Israel, it was on one hand the story of the people around them, but also on the other hand, the story of the people they were called out of, the story of these other people that we used to be like and part of this still lives in us, but the Lord calls us not to do anymore what these folks did in this story. So you add all that up and you have the origin story of the nations from which God's people are called. Now, early on in the story, we're going to focus now on chapter 11, the story of Babel. Uh, Early on, you see two things that are at the heart of all humanity. Now, we'll read verses 1 through 4 again. You're going to see those two things in their words in verse 4. But let's start at verse 1. It says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So what happens then is they all are settled in one place, right? Which they weren't supposed to do. They were supposed to spread out and cover the earth, but they all go together and migrate to one area. And then they start building the city. They get very excited to do it. And there's this strange comment that they have brick for stone and tar for mortar. And you're like, oh, that's a random thing to throw in there in a story this small. And what that is, is a very subtle dig at them. Uh, Brick didn't make such great stone as stone did. And the Hebrew people, they used stone. They were proud of it. Uh, And certainly tar did not make for very good mortar. You imagine trying to build this massive thing with tar holding the bricks together and how much that would shift over time and how the sun might melt. It just wouldn't work very well. And so early on, this narrator is kind of throwing these subtle digs at kind of how pitiful what they're trying to do is, even though it is grand and lofty. That theme of making fun of it will be magnified later on, but there's just a little dig right there. Uh, But you see in their words two things that are on all of our hearts. They say, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach to heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. The two things you see there are rebellion and pride, two things that live in all of our hearts. Rebellion against God's plan for them, which I'll outline in a minute, and pride in the desire to make a name for themselves and appear great with this tower that they have made. 
So the rebellion, the, the casting off God's good plan looks like this. Uh, we saw in chapter one and then sort of again in chapter two, God made the heavens and the earth, right? So all the stars in the sky, all the heavens, he made it all. He made the earth as well. And then he makes us and puts us in the earth and gives us dominion over it, right? So he says, these heavens are mine. I give you this earth. This is your planet. You have dominion over it. That's why we're able to harness the treasures of the earth. That's why we're at the top of the food chain here. God put us in charge of this planet. And what we do is the opposite of what we're supposed to do. He gives us dominion over the planet, tells us to spread out and cover the whole thing by being fruitful and multiply. And we decide not to do what we're supposed to do and to do what we are not supposed to do. So we say we don't want to spread out, right? We don't want to be scattered abroad. And so we're all going to collect in this city because we don't want this good plan God has for us of spreading about and covering the earth. And what's more, he gave us the earth as dominion, but let's build a city that goes all the way up into heaven. Let's build a city that goes up into his domain. So... This would be like if uh, I've been trying to think of a good analogy for this all week and anything I can think of is ridiculous and this one's ridiculous too, but what they did is ridiculous and that's why. So, so here's what this would be like. If you have a house and you have kids, you have probably designated rooms in the house that belong to certain kids, right? Whole house is yours and you're like, okay, here's your room, here's your room, here's your room and you give them based on their age and wisdom certain leeway with how they want to put the decorations up and you may expect them to keep it clean because that's like their domain. That doesn't make the house any less yours. The whole house is yours, right? That's kind of what the Lord did. The heavens and earth are all his. He gives us earth as our space, you know, our room, our spot. Well, let's say you come home one day and you're just puzzled because you see your three children all slowly pushing their beds through the hallway toward your bedroom. And you're like, what's going on here? And the oldest one says, oh, well, your room is bigger than ours, and it's nicer, and it has better furniture, and uh, it's ours now. And here we go, and they're just, there they are, like this armada of beds, like coming and invading your space. Any parent's going to be like, no, 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 that is, that is not how this works, right? And you're going to push them back, you're going to get them back into your room. This is very similar to what humanity did on this day when we said, no, we're not going to cover the earth, we're not going to take dominion over the earth like we're supposed to, we're going to rise up into God's realm, we're going to start invading his space. And what we're going to see here in a moment is that the Lord responds similarly. So that's the rebellion element here not doing the covering the earth that we're supposed to do and in resistance to that going up into his territory now here's the neat thing about this this is the third time in the book of Genesis that all of humanity has defied God's plan in an attempt to be like him the first time is in the Garden of Eden. All of humanity was two people at that point, but Adam and Eve together heard the serpent say, if you eat from this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, right? And so they break God's boundaries. They eat the forbidden fruit in an attempt to be like him. They're trying to cross into that supernatural God-like realm. 
Now, the second one is a little more debatable. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's that strange story of the Nephilim that happens before the flood when, as best we can tell, what it looks like happened was there were these supernatural creatures, probably angels that were rebelling from the Lord. They saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and people were eager to give their daughters in marriage to these supernatural creatures, this crazy thing that went on, in an attempt to basically make this kind of like breed of supermen, right? Like if maybe our children after us can be like super people, supernatural people, if we do this weird thing. Now, if you weren't here for that sermon, that probably made no sense. So just like forget, just assume there was a second time where we tried to become like God and all of humanity did crazy things. We sure did. And here is this third time where all of humanity is not united and we break off the plan of covering the earth and having dominion over it and try to go up into his realm to be heavenly people like him. So there's the rebellion aspect. The other one is more plain to see. I mean, they say very plainly, let's make for ourselves a name, right? You can just see the pride dripping off of those words. Let's show everybody how great we are by building this awesome tower. So uh, you can see then the pride and the rebellion there. And uh, that tells you what is at the root of so many of humanity's great accomplishments. I mean, all of our ancestors were there on that day. This stuff hasn't left the human heart. But a story like this, where we see a grand and lofty thing that all of humanity tries to do, built on pride and rebellion, it's got to change how we look at some of the greatest achievements of mankind. It should change how you look at that list of the seven wonders of the world when you see the great things we have done. The pyramids, for instance, are on that list, and they are amazing, and they were all built in the name of a pharaoh who claimed to be God over his people, to make a name for himself and exert his claim as God. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, we don't know what Babylonian king it was that built them. It's a good chance it was Nebuchadnezzar. And we do know that Nebuchadnezzar walked around Babylon in his palace saying, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? Right, just the most vain thing you can say, fueling the building of these great things. Uh, similarly, the things that we have done today, the moon landing makes a great example. When we landed on the moon, maybe mankind's greatest achievement, our rhetoric was very united, right? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But make no mistake, we didn't leave humanity's flag on the moon, right? We didn't leave Earth's flag on the moon. We left an American flag on the moon because you better believe we got there before the Russians. That's what that's about, right? We are making a name for ourselves saying, hey, look, Russia, boom, we did this. You did not do this. So even our great lofty accomplishments have underneath them a sense of let's make a name for ourselves. There's a line in an old play called The Fable of the Bees that says, pride and vanity have built more hospitals than all the virtues put together. Uh, humanity has done some amazing things, uh, but if we dig and dig and dig, we can find the pride in our hearts that are underneath all of them. This will also help you understand things that are going on today around us, why so many movements in our country, like political movements that are focused on casting off God's bounds and doing things our own way, why they take pride so seriously. 
uh, because there's a connection in our heart between casting God's plans off and the pride in our own heart. Isn't it just, does it ever struck you as odd that one group, and there are many groups that do this, would have such a thing as a pride parade? Doesn't just doesn't sound like a little odd to you. Why would you have a parade about pride? Like that's the worst vice of them all. Why are we doing Well, the reason that that blends into our culture so well is that rebelling from God's ways and pride are so closely connected in our hearts. That's the reason that so many groups in our nation have made their whole cause about recognition for their group or normalizing people like us or bettering people like us, making a name for ourselves is what is at the bottom of that. So this, I mean, a story like this can help you understand so many crazy things that are going on, all the monuments in D.C. and the political parties and all the crazy stuff that is happening. It helps you understand something that's maybe a little closer to home, too. Uh, it helps you understand social media as well, uh, something I've used and many of you guys have used. Um, and maybe I'll make an example just out of like one of the many networks that are out there and you can apply it to all of them. Uh, my wife and I have enjoyed Instagram for quite a while. It's really fun. Uh, and if you don't know much about Instagram, what you do is, you know, most people have a phone that has a camera on it nowadays, it's connected to the internet. And eventually we figured out that you can take pictures of things that make you happy and that's really fun because you can look back at them later. And it didn't take very long before we realized, you know, when you've got pictures of things you love, you show them to your friends. And so it didn't take us long to figure out, hey, you can share these with your friends on this network. So you take a picture of something that makes you happy, right? You share it and then your friends see it and say it's like your kids or something. And they're like, oh, that makes me happy too. And then they hit this button that's a like button and that's how it works. And then you get a report back that's like 23 people liked your photo that you posted and that's that's the way that it works right and so it starts off and many people that use it have felt this way about it it starts off like I love pictures these things make me happy I love this this is great and then you get the notification uh, 23 people liked your photo and then oh only 10 people liked your next photo oh 30 people liked your other photo and the way that they push this stuff on you you start thinking more about how many people like your picture and the name you've made for yourselves than the actual fun things that are in your picture. And so I've talked to so many people that are wrestling with this, like I'm having fun with this, but it's all about likes. And I just don't like, like I don't, why is it like that? Well, the reason is this pride still lives in all of our hearts. This desire to make a name for ourselves is still here in all of our hearts. And the people that make social media networks know that. They know that you will see people like your photo and go, oh, they love me. They really love, I'm making a name for myself. They know that about you. Now that doesn't mean you should or shouldn't use it, but it does help to explain that tension that you have if you use some of those networks and you're thinking, man, this is always going back to how many people retweeted my words and how many followers I have. And if you don't like that, well, that's why, because that's still resting on all of our hearts. Uh, one last thing this helps explain, uh, helps explain a core value we have as a church. Uh, you know, when people build lofty things, there are two big pitfalls we've seen now, rebellion and pride, right? Those are the big pitfalls of the people of Babel. Uh, and the same is true with churches too. Uh, it, is, it is not uncommon nowadays for a church to just explode and grow and turn into this amazing, huge thing. Or some churches even here in our town, you walk in and there's so many people and you're like, this is amazing. And then the music is awesome and the preaching is so good. And it's like, wow, like look what we are building in the name of the Lord. Like this is so awesome. Even things like that, because it's built by people, because we are all people that have pride within us all and have rebellion within us all, there are two great pitfalls we can fall to. 
trying to make a name for ourselves instead of the Lord's name and rebellion against the Lord's ways. Those things can creep in even to church life. And so we resolve one of our big priorities here is God's mission, God's way. We're not making a name for ourselves here. We don't want people to praise the name of Calvary or any of our staff members, our leaders or anybody. We want people to praise Jesus, his mission, and his way. We want to do it his way, not rebel from the things that he has done. Those things we get from this story because we do not want to do what the people of Babel did and build something great in our own name, our own way. No, we want to build something for him, his name, his way. So that's why we do that. Let's move on to another thing this story teaches us about humanity. What we're going to see next is we are actually capable of building amazing things, like God made us able to do awesome stuff, but there's a really big catch, and we're gonna see that catch in a minute in verse five, but before we do that, I wanna just show you how important verse five is, okay? So, throughout chapter 10, and halfway through now this story in chapter 11, it's all been about people, right? This person, this person, this guy's name who's hard to pronounce, this guy whose name your pastor can't even pronounce, right? Like this guy, person, 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 and then people did this and people built a tower and the people gathered together. And all of a sudden, the first two words in verse five are gonna be the Lord. And it's like, oh, I forgot about him, right? He hasn't been in this story for a while. Like when the Lord enters the story, it's, it's, it's a big deal, right? So this is sort of like, maybe you're watching like a movie all the, and you know, things are going on and then Spider-Man shows up and you're like, this is about to get good, right? Like the powerful dude is here now. It's kind of like that. The Lord is appearing on the scene and he is the one who acts for the rest of the story, which is pretty awesome. So it's that switch, it's that the Lord entering the scene. There's another very grand way that this author Moses shows us that the first four words of verse five are the centerpiece of the story. And it's through a device called a chiasm, which you have probably heard me talk about if you've been here for a little while. One of the few big words that I'm willing to like talk about, even though big words are, are tough and not always so fun, because it is so common in Genesis that we might as well just learn what they are. So if you haven't been here and we've talked about it before, uh, a chiasm is a poetic device where things appear in one order for a while and then they appear in the opposite order. So it has a back and forth feel to it. Uh, the most famous example is probably ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Do you feel that back and forth? Country, you, you, country. Prime example of that. Well, in Genesis, this story here, we have the biggest chiasm that I have ever seen. This whole story of Babel is one big chiasm, and it's probably too small to read because we can't even fit it on the screens there. Uh, what is that? Seven different levels of things that happen in one order and then things that happen in reverse order. And so that's why in verse one, you see the whole earth had the same language. And then at the end of verse nine, you see uh, the language of the whole earth, uh, similar like that beginning and end and it's like that symmetrical through the whole passage um, when they do that a lot of times and they put the thing in the middle only once that's because the thing in the middle is really big like it's the centerpiece so he wrote this whole story used intentional words all to highlight that thing in the middle like this this is a big deal what's going on in the middle and what are these four English words that are so important that they're the centerpiece of this story? The Lord came down. That's when things change in the story. So that's how big the beginning of verse five is. 
So on one hand, it has this feel of, oh yeah, God showed up. This is about to get good. Uh, On the other hand, don't miss the mockery here. This is a tower that went up into heaven, up all the way into heaven. The loftiest thing we have ever done up to this point. Look at this tall tower we have built. And the Lord comes down to see it. This is not about God's need for bifocals or a better prescription in his glasses. This is making the point that the greatest things we accomplish are so small before God. And it's, it's outright mockery, like he is making fun of them in this story. So this is like God sitting in his throne and, and saying, oh, look at that little Lego tower they built. Yeah. I think I'm going to scooch my chair over there and hunch down and just have a look. Four bricks tall. Look at that. Oh, that's just so adorable. The loftiest thing that we have ever built. The same is true for mankind's greatest achievements. So what we're seeing here is that we are capable of doing incredible things, right? We put a man on the moon. We can do some awesome stuff. Now we're talking about Mars. We can do incredible things. And he'll say later that there's nothing we can put our mind to that we can't do if we're all able to cooperate like this. Like he made us with the ability to do impressive stuff, but it is nothing compared to God and his glory. Can you imagine the Lord of hosts sitting in his throne with all of the universe in his hand, all of the galaxies, all of the stars just in his hand watching the moon landing. Look at that. They went from here to there. Oh, well. And oh, look, now they're back. Now they're back where I put them. Oh, well, that, that was really something, guys. Wow, right? To us, it is our greatest accomplishment. It's, I can't, I look up sometimes at the moon and think, we went there. It's amazing. To him, it's just so small and insignificant. We can do awesome things that even impress ourselves, but before God, they are just so insignificant. We have to keep that in mind when we're looking at the monuments of Washington, D.C., when we're considering the wonders of smartphones and what they're able to do, the, the skyscrapers in Chicago, the wonders of SpaceX and NASA and Nashville production when you can hear it. Yeah, we could do some really cool stuff. And the story admits that. It doesn't discount that. But at the same time, before God, it just pales in comparison. That means something for you too. What what about you personally? What what are your greatest accomplishments? Did you bear a child or build a company? Uh, What is it that you have done? Well, on one hand, God made you with this incredible ability to do whatever the cool thing you did. Ace a test, get an A in a class, whatever it was. Because God gave you that awesome ability. On the other hand, we have got to just crush our egos and say these great things we have done, they just pale in comparison to God and his glory. So to kind of recap that then, uh, we saw on one hand that mankind loves to build lofty things based on pride and rebellion. And then secondly, we find out that though we can build lofty things, they're they're not so lofty before God. Uh, They pale in significance before God. Uh, Now we are going to see what God does in response, uh, how God acts when we build incredible things based on our own hubris and our own rebellion. And it's not pretty, but it is very poetic. It is richly poetic. Um, 
some passages in the Bible are like a, like a tin of popcorn that you can just chow down on, right? And before you know it, you're like, whoa, I ate a whole tin of popcorn. I didn't even realize it, right? Some pages in the Bible are like, whoa, I just read 20 pages and I didn't even realize it. Some passages like this one are more like a very dense brownie that you eat like three bites and you're like, whew, that was delicious, tapping out because that was rich. Like this one is rich. So in at least five ways, the Lord puts in excuse me, incredible poetic devices in the justice part of the story and what he does to respond to show how poetic his justice sometimes is. I'll, I'll walk through a few of them with you. Uh, there's a back and forth in the way that, uh, in the way that the people speak and the way that God speaks and, and it echoes each other. They say, come, let us make bricks, right? And then the Lord shows up and he's one, but he says, come, let us, just the same, right? Like he sings back to them the song that they sang you just see it in a musical, like, come let us make bricks, come let us go down and stop them, like just back and forth and now they're doing this. Uh, that's poetic and it's God saying, hey, I'm turning this around on you. Uh, the second one is probably the most complex. It's lost on us because it doesn't translate to English, but in the Hebrew language, when the people talk, the author intentionally chose words that have the Hebrew syllables for N, B, and L in order, like NBL, 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 over and over, almost like rhyming to a song or something, in a way that would make a Hebrew reader like stop and kind of stumble over it the way that I stumbled over those names. Uh, then, when the Lord confuses their language, he takes those three letters reversed, L, then B, and then N. The same thing back, like you're talking, you're talking, I'm gonna turn it around, I'm gonna confuse that. Like all these awesome like little poetic devices that he does. Uh, third, we talked about the chiasm already, the back and forth structure. The other thing that that does is it shows that there is a forward direction to the story and then a backward direction to the story. So it was as if, like if this were a Lego tower, it would be as if they built it like block, 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 and then he just disassembled it in the block, 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 the same order, right back down. Like that's the way that it gives the feel to this story. Uh, so figuratively, he's turning everything around on them, right? Uh, but here's the crazy thing. Fourthly, he's also literally turning things around on them. Uh, for instance, in what they say is that they don't want to be scattered abroad, right? That's what they're trying to avoid. We want to build this tower so we won't be scattered abroad. Uh, and then verse eight, you see what he does. He scatters them abroad. The, the very thing that they did not want, he just says, boom, I'm doing that. And fifthly, he turns around their other motive as well. This, I think, is the most tragic. They wanted to make a name for themselves, right? Well, you can see in verse seven that the Lord confused their language. And then you see in verse nine, they actually get a name. Therefore, its name was called Babel uh, because there the Lord confused their language. Babel is... Uh, like the word for confusion in the Hebrew language. Uh, we would just say Babel, and plenty of languages have words for nonsense that sound kind of like Babel or Babel. They get a name for themselves, just like they wanted, and that name means foolishness, nonsense, confusion. So in all these different ways, the Lord is taking what they are doing and reversing it on them. There is such rich poetry to that justice. And so the scary part then is that 
the same thing meets us if we work in pride and rebellion against the Lord's designs. He's saying, you wanna do this? Here is how I react. I stop it and I disassemble it, I judge it, I come in. So the story itself then is a cautionary tale against working in pride and rebellion. Most of us wanna do life our way, right? We wanna live the way that we wanna live, do things the way that we wanna do things, not have a lot of rules on us, and earn a great name for ourselves through our work. So for a lot of us, what this story means is that the life we think we want, we don't really want. This tower could be a cautionary tale about every dream that you have ever dreamed of building for yourself. Do you really want a life of casting off God's ways, living however you want, building everything yourself without his help, no thank you, and then spending eternity paying for that? Is that what you want? Because the Lord will come down, as is the centerpiece of this story. Everything you can build, the Lord can disassemble with all the force of a Hebrew chiasm and a 3,000-year-old prophet. We build things God's way for God's name, not our way for our name. So that's the point of the, the story itself, the nine verses there. There's another thing I gotta tell you about too because this begins another big theme uh, throughout the whole Bible. From this place, which was from then for called Babel, a nation is built and you might be able to guess the name of the nation, Babylon. And the city of Babylon is built right on top of this very spot. And Babylon becomes a very important character in the Bible. It becomes really a symbol of all of the nations in a sense. Now, as time unfolds, all of the nations on earth come from these people that we read about, and the nation of Babylon, which becomes kind of a symbol of the nations, is built right there. Uh, and so you hear about them a lot, and one of the most fascinating ways you hear about them is in the time of the exile, uh, because when God's people are taken away from Israel, they're forced to live in Babel. They're forced to live in Babylon and they've got to figure out how to live in purity and live in goodness when they are surrounded by the people of Babel, by the descendants of Babel. They're watching Nebuchadnezzar walk around his palace saying, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? And they've got to avoid that because they're living in exile among the Babylonians. Well, that's important to us because Symbolically, Christians are exiles in Babylon as well. Uh, Peter writes, for instance, to all the Christians in the world and he refers to us as exiles uh, because we very much live like they do, exiled in a land that is strange to us until the Lord takes us back into the land that he has prepared for us. We live just like them. Uh, and then later on, we read John in his revelation talking about the grand city of man that eventually meets the Lord's judgment. And guess what the name of the city is? It's, it's Babylon, representing all of the nations of the earth. So that's why I say so much of this story can help you understand the nations that are around you. It helps you understand every nation in the world, and it helps us understand the world that we live in that kind of lives in us a little bit as well. So I want to point out then the way Peter talks about it and the way John talks about it. If you want to, 
2. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. We're going to read verses 11 and 12. And this is when Peter refers to us as exiles. During our time in Babel, we are exiled now now in Babel. How are we supposed to live? What are we supposed to do while these kind of towers of Babel are built up around us? 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So how are we supposed to live then as exiles? Well, what's gonna happen is our bodies are going to want to do all the crazy stuff that the nations around us do. There's gonna be an urge in us to live that way and do those things. He says, as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. In fact, live so honorably in such a godly way that when people look at you and try to revile you, they can't because of the way that you're living. So that when the Lord returns, if your next door neighbor has to give some testimony about you, they're gonna say something like, well, I would love to rail against her because I really don't like Christians very much, but actually she was a really good person and I don't really have anything to say about her. That's the way that your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends need to talk about you. If you keep your conduct honorable among people so that they cannot speak you against you as evildoers, but they see your good deeds and glorify you when Jesus comes back. Uh, so that's the way we are to live while we're in exile in Babel. And we have to keep in mind that those desires still live in us. Then we need to read Revelation 18 together. We see where Babylon is going. And this is a stark reminder that the judgment that Babel faced, all of the nations face it one day. Uh, it's a reminder that makes us kind of wake up from, uh, from just not caring about eternal things and spiritual things and say, oh man, this stuff is real. Here's what Revelation 18 says. Says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. This is the city of Babylon that he's talking about. For her sins have been piled as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid. Give back double according to her deeds. And the cup that she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and I am not a widow and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord who judges her is strong. Christians, the Babylon that we dwell in lives in pride. That is what the nations do. And she is headed for judgment as Babel was, as Babylon is. And so we cannot live like them gratifying the passions of our bodies. For one day the Lord will call us out of her as she is destroyed. So the thrust of this story then is a warning not to build things in pride or in rebellion like the nations do. And that is part of the Bible's grand message when it comes to the seeds of Babel, to Babylon itself, to the world, and that is come out of her and live Jesus' ways instead. 
Now, what I hope that that does is just awaken us to eternal things, right? It's easy to come into church on Christmas time and be thinking, what am I gonna get my kids on Christmas day? Like that's what's on your mind. And sometimes things like this will just wake us up and we'll say, whoa, okay, the whole world really is headed for judgment. The Lord will call his people out of it. This is real. And I hope there are some of you that are seeing the vanity of the things that you have tried to build in your life and are saying, okay, how can I turn from that? Like if I want to leave that, does the Lord have room for me? Can I come and be part of what he has done and build things in his name? Will he let me do that? And the answer is yes. And the way that I want to tell you that is by reading one last passage to you. Let's flip together to Psalm 2. And we are going to see the same things that happened in Babel. They're all going to come true in Psalm 2. And we'll talk just about what that means for each of us as individuals. So this theme of the nations, of which Babylon is the chief symbol, this is a psalm about them, about us. He says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Can you see the people of Babel devising something vain as the nations do? He says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. Can you see the people of Babel saying, we don't want to be scattered abroad. Let's do this instead, casting off the bonds. Well, verse four speaks of God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Can you see all the ways that he mocked the people of Babel, even in that story? And then he will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell you the the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So the Lord says then, I am installing my king. He will rule. He will destroy those that oppose him and he will welcome in those that will serve under him. And then the craziest thing happens. This is what I'm leading up to. He actually gives an invitation to all the kings of the earth, and by extension to all of us, to switch sides. He says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, as we have been warned today. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, or some translations say kiss the sun, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may be soon kindled, but my favorite line how blessed are all who take refuge in him so he calls to them and says be warned come under the king that I am installing for this king's wrath could be quickly kindled but come and worship him and rejoice with trembling don't give him like half-hearted praise don't give him like reluctant okay I have to worship you type no like rejoice at how glorious he is and you can enjoy it it's such an awesome part of it kiss the sun he says uh, because he is the one that you must turn to for safety and forgiveness as it says take refuge in him let me tell you the name of that son that king that name is Jesus 
And he's the one that we worshiped all morning. We sang about him coming around Christmas time. He's the one that we worship all the time with a lot of our songs, the one whose mission we pray for, the one who we do everything in submission to. If you are living today realizing I am living in vanity, I am living in pride, I am living in rebellion, and everything I am building, I am building for me. He calls you today, turn from that to Jesus himself. Live under him as king and worship him for blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray.